Hebrews chapter 11, and we are on verse 35, but let's get a complete paragraph in our mind here. So I'll start with verse 32, just to read the text and give us the context. And what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, and of David and Samuel and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, and put foreign armies to flight. Woman, women received back their dead by resurrection, and others were tortured, not accepting their release, in order that they may attain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. So, and I think we mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, then clearly it, it was important to the author of Hebrews to include people who suffered in the same list of faith of people who had great victories. In order that we might know that Genuine faith isn't um, seen to be such simply by temporal prosperity or temporal victories, but it's a genuine faith that transcends this world and its circumstances. And it's a faith that will enable people to maintain their confession even when they are threatened with great bodily harm or death. And so that is the essence of this faith that we are studying that is the substance of things not seen. Genuine faith. And, and also I think a, a, a related thing is the idea of confession. That confession is more important than we realize. It's something that's always, always at issue is whether we are going to confess publicly what we truly believe, even though what we believe is exceedingly unpopular. All right, now we're on verse 35. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Now, there are a couple incidents of this in the Bible. In, they had to do with Elijah and Elisha. The first one is 1 Kings 17. Why don't we all turn to these? 1 Kings 17, um, around verse 20. You all have your message Bible with you today? <laughs> no? Oh, you, you left that home good. You must have listened to the radio show yesterday. <laughs> that Barrett is something, isn't she? That Barrett? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> 1 Kings 17. I'll start with verse 17. All right. Now it came about after these things that the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became sick. And his sickness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. So she said to Elijah, what do I have to do with you, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my iniquity to remembrance and to put my son to death. So it's interesting that when her son dies, she's worried about her sin. It, it's a common way of thinking that if something goes bad, I'm being punished for my sins. And that's what she's thinking about. 
And he said to her, give me your son. And he took him from her bosom and carried him up to the upper room where he was living and laid him on his own bed. And he called to the Lord and said, O Lord, my God, hast thou brought calamity to the widow with whom I am staying by causing her son to die? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and called to the Lord and said, O Lord, my God, I pray thee, let this child's life return to him. And the Lord heard the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child returned to him, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down to the upper room, into the, from the upper room into the house, and gave him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son is alive. So this was one incident where someone received their dead back. Um, and we know that Jesus did this. Now, one of the things that we're going to do as we interpret this passage is make a distinction between the type of resurrection mentioned in the first part of the verse and the resurrection mentioned in the last part of the verse. At the very end of the verse, it says, others um, were tortured, not accepting your release in order they might obtain a better resurrection. And I'm going to say, and I'll think I can prove this, that the first resurrection is like this type that we just read about, which is somebody revived, but they're still in their mortal body. And so this son of the widow died again, just like Lazarus did. <laughs> okay? And so that, that resurrection would be coming back from the dead, but back into the same mortal body you had before. And I'm going to argue that the better resurrection here is talking about the resurrection at the end of the age unto immortality with a, with a body that will not die. Right? Now, when we get to that, I'll tell you why it's important to understand that, because there was a misunderstanding early in church history that led to some serious error on this matter. Okay, now there's another incident of um, resurrection like this, and that's in 2 Kings 24, starting with verse 18. 2 Kings 24. I don't, well, part of the reason I do so many cross-references like this is that there's no way that I, that I can see to be able to verse by verse teach through the entire Bible in my lifetime. Um, because at least if we go into this much in depth, there's, there's just too much material. So when we're studying a verse, I love to go elsewhere. So we're learning the Old Testament while we're learning Hebrews. Because I wouldn't have time to just teach through first and second Kings. Um, just for the sake of the time. But I do want us to be familiar with what's here. Okay, so 2 Kings 24, starting with verse 18. Do I have this right? Four, not 24. My S looked like a two. Four. <laughs> yeah, 35 and 37 is where the resurrection happens. 2 Kings 4. Let's try that one. Well, that's three. Okay, verse 18. When the child was grown, the day came when he went out to his father to the reapers, and he said to his father, My, my head, my head. And he said to his servant, Carry him to his mother. When they had taken him and brought him to his mother, he sat on her lap until noon and then died. 
And she went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God and shut the door behind him and went out. And then she called her husband and said, Please send me one of the servants and one of the donkeys that I may run to the man of God and return. And he said, Why will you go to him today? It is neither new moon nor Sabbath. And she said, It will be well. Then she saddled a donkey and said to her servant, Drive and go forward. Do not slow down the pace for me unless I tell you. So she went and came to the man of God to Mark Carmel. And it came about when the man of God saw her at a distance, he said to Gehazi, his servant, Behold, yonder is the Shunammite. Please run now to meet her and say to her, It is well with you. Is it well with you? Is it well with your husband? And is it well with your child? And she answered, It is well. When she came to the man of God to the hill, she caught hold of his feet, and Gehazi came near to push her away. But the man of God said, Let her alone, for her soul is troubled within her. And the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me. Then she said, Did I ask for a son from my Lord? Did I not say, Do not deceive me? Then he said to Gehazi, Cut your loins and take my staff in your hand and go your way. If you meet any man, do not salute him. And if anyone salutes you, do not answer him. Lay my staff on the lad's face. And the mother of the lad said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. And he arose and followed her. And then Gehazi passed on before them and laid the staff on the lad's face, but there was neither sound nor response. So he returned to meet him and told him, The lad has not awakened. Then Elisha came into the house. Behold, the lad was dead and laid on his bed. So he entered and shut the door behind him and prayed to the Lord. And he went up and lay on the child, put his mouth on his mouth and his eyes on his eyes and his hands on his hands, and he stretched himself on him, and the flesh of the child became warm. Then he returned and walked in the house once back and forth and went up and stretched himself on him. And the lad sneezed seven times and opened his eyes. And he called Gehazi and said, Call the Shunammite. So he called her. And when she came in, he said, Take up your son. And she went in and fell at his feet and bowed herself to the ground. And she took up her son and went out. So there was another woman See, our passage says women receive back their dead by resurrection. So these two accounts are likely the women that the author of Hebrews had in mind. The the account with Elijah and then the one with Elisha. So these were resurrections, but not resurrection unto immortality, but just back to this life so that these young lads could live out a, a longer life on the face of the earth and then subsequently die. Now, it goes on and says, oh, by the way, I have some other cross-references. Dean, could you look up Luke 7, 12 to 16? And Brian, uh, John 11, 40 to 45. Um, help me with your name, I'm sorry. Paul. Paul, could you look up Philippians 3, 11? Do you mind? Okay. Yeah, Luke seven twelve through 16. Now when he came nigh to the gate of the city, behold, there was a, a dead man carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and much people of the city was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said unto her, Weep not. And he, <coughs> he came and touched the buyer, his son, I assume, and that they bear him 
stood still. And she said, young man, I say to thee, arise. And he was dead, and he was dead, sat up and began to speak. And he de delivered his mother, him to his mother. And there came fear upon all, and they glorified God, saying that, <coughs> that a great prophet has risen among us, and that God has visited, has visited, hath visited his people. Okay. You need to get a new King James. <laughs> That's a good translation, King James. Don't get me wrong, but a new King James is even better. Anyhow, um, what do you notice about that story, though? After reading the ones that we did, are, are there some uh, intended parallels, do you think, with Elijah? Wasn't it a widow that received back her son? And so here we have another widow. And after this, what did the people say? A great prophet has arisen. So the, I would say that Luke's intent there would be that these people were making a connection between Elijah, the great prophet who raised a widow's son, and now here Jesus does the same. So this is the greater than Elijah who's come. So it was part of how they become to know who Jesus is and see that God had visited them. It's also interesting that if you read in Maccabees, they weren't sure what to do, and they said, we will wait until God raises up a prophet, because they knew they didn't have any prophets. From Malachi till John the Baptist, there were no prophets, and they knew it. But when John the Baptist came, he was a prophet, and now they see Jesus as the prophet, and Jesus is prophet, priest, king. So there's another resurrection. Um, and then John 11, 40 to 45. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you and promise you that if you would believe and rely on me, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. Yes, I know you always hear and listen to me, but I have said this on account of and for the benefit of the people standing around, so that they may believe that you did send me, that you have made me your messenger. When he had said this, he shouted with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And out walked the man who had been dead, his hands and feet wrapped in burial cloths and with a burial napkin bound around his face. Jesus said to them, Free him of the burial wrappings and let him go. Upon seeing what Jesus had done, many of the Jews who had come with Mary believed in him. They trusted in him and adhered to him and relied on him. Okay, that sounds like the Amplified. Okay. <laughs> Um, so there was a resurrection. Now again, as in the case of this widow's son and the case of Lazarus, these were not resurrections into immortal bodies, but back into a mortal body. All right? So they would be people that ultimately died again, but will be part of the final resurrection. But it was a sign of what happened when Lazarus was raised. It said they believed. And when, before Jesus does the resurrection, he says, he prays that they, the point of this is that they would know who Jesus is. That they would understand and they would come to faith. So the point of miracles and signs in, in the Gospels and in Acts is to show that Jesus really is the Christ, the Messiah. Okay, and then uh, the Philippians 3.11. If by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead... Right, so Paul's ultimate goal is to attain to the resurrection. 
So he has an eternal perspective. Yes, Carla. Yeah, the the accounts in the Bible, it was women. And so so that's just the accuracy of the Hebrews. It was women who received back their sons. And I think you see something, well, especially in the case of widows. Um, in the ancient world, a widow was a, a very vulnerable person because of lacking protection and what have you. And, and a widow's son would be her future home. Okay, that the family would be able to keep their land or keep their, you know, that, that the son would grow up and care for her as she got older. So a widow receiving back a son, it was a tremendous miracle of God's provision. So that's uh, the significance of that. But now look at, as it goes on, this is kind of an interesting turn. After all of these great victories and winning battles and conquering kingdoms and receiving back the dead, uh, putting foreign armies to flight. And then notice that suddenly, in the middle of verse 35, we have a shift. And the, the grammar in the Greek makes it clear with the beginning, uh, the word but, there's a contrast. Others, others were tortured, not accepting their release, in order that they might obtain a better resurrection. Let me tell you about the cult of martyrdom that arose based on misinterpreting this verse. All right? In the early church, there there were people that thought that what this meant was that if you died as a martyr, you would actually have a better resurrection than and have it better in the future life than if somebody just died of ordinary causes. And they were so uh, wanting this better resurrection that there were people that were pursuing martyrdom as a goal. And there were stories out of the early church of uh, people being thrown to the lions and the lions weren't too interested so they would harass the lion because they were too docile. <laughs> Come on, you lion, you're supposed to kill me. with and uh, seeking martyrdom as if it were the goal of the faith, and which was an error that uh, you can read about in early church history. Based on misinterpreting this verse, because they, they thought the better resurrection was in contrast with just the resurrection that all believers will experience. But it's not contrasting two different kind of immortal resurrections, ordinary believers and martyrs, but it's contrasting the resurrection in the first part of the verse just to... Uh, mortal life and a resurrection the immortal uh, to immortality that all believers will experience. All right, so the better resurrection is the one at the end of the age that all will participate in. Not uh, I'm, let me tell you why I'm saying this. After um, my experience of reading the truth all the way out to Myrtle Beach and air all the way back. I read a book on the way back by Dallas Willard on spiritual formation. And the entire book is based on a misinterpretation of Matthew 11, 28-30. The entire book. And his interpretation of this is, Jesus said, take my yoke upon me and learn of me. And his interpretation is that the yoke is an invitation to sort of a monastic lifestyle. 
to, to take Jesus' yoke on you means to go into solitude, to go out into the wilderness, uh, to go into silence, and in th- these spiritual disciplines that they learned from the Roman Catholic Church. And that's how he interprets that passage. And then the, he comes back to it. Every chapter he comes back to this yoke. We're supposed to take on the yoke of Jesus. Well, the problem is that's not what it means in Matthew 11. The yoke that Jesus was talking about was one that was in contrast to the yoke that they were already under. Now, what was this yoke? Well, it was the law and the requirements of Sabbath keeping and things like that. Because right after Jesus offers rest, the obvious reference is to Sabbath rest. The rest of, right after that in Matthew chapter 12 is all about debates about Sabbath. And Jesus is accused of being a Sabbath breaker. So he says, I'll give you Sabbath rest. And they say, no, you're a Sabbath breaker. We, you, you have to get under this yoke of following our regulations about Sabbath. Now, I would interpret, and you heard Ryan preach on Sabbath uh, last July. He did a great sermon on July 30th about the true meaning of Sabbath. But the New Testament sees Sabbath keeping as coming to faith in Messiah. In the book of Hebrews, it says, There remaineth therefore a rest for the people of God. And the claim of the New Testament, both Jesus and the apostles was, is that if you don't come to Jesus, no matter how, um, uh, what's the word for being very, very diligent to do something? Fastidious? Is that right? Yeah, no matter how strongly you work at keeping Sabbath, you're a Sabbath breaker. And the claim of the New Testament is that everybody that rejects Christ is a Sabbath breaker, no matter what they do on Shabbat. And that those who believe on Jesus Christ are entering into the true Sabbath rest that God intended from all eternity for the true people of God. Now that's, so when Jesus says, come unto me, all you are labor and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest, this is an invitation for the gospel to enter into true Sabbath rest by putting your faith in Christ. But Dallas Willard takes it as um, an invitation to lifestyle for for Protestants and to, to and to practice the spiritual disciplines and to go out into the wilderness and to sit in solitude and to and, and so on. Now, why am I telling you this? What's this have to do with Hebrews eleven thirty five? Well, I was telling you that these people that misinterpreted the better resurrection went out and tried to become martyrs, thinking they needed to to have a good resurrection. My point is that when we misinterpret even one verse of the Bible, we are putting ourselves in spiritual peril. Alright? So can you imagine when Jesus says, come to me and I'll give you rest, and he's offering the forgiveness of sins, true rest, there remaineth therefore a rest for the people of God, as Hebrews says, true deliverance from the yoke of bondage. What did Paul call the yoke? He says, do not return to the yoke of bondage, Galatians 5. What did Peter call the yoke in, in Acts 15? He said, why put a yoke on the disciples that we neither we nor our fathers were able to bear? I talked about this a little on the radio yesterday because the message takes the word yoke out of there so you can't even make the connection. You, can't, you don't have a chance to find out what Jesus meant because they take the terms away and then there's no more cross-reference. There's no way to find it and to understand it. Now, what I don't get is this. Why is a man like Dallas Willard, who's supposed to be a great evangelical giant, wrote a whole book based on misinterpreting one verse of the Bible? 
And then once you get off, the whole rest of the book, you can't ever get back to the truth. Because it's all based on this false interpretation. So my point is this. It really does matter what the Bible says. You can get, you can misinterpret one verse and put your whole life into bondage. You could go join some monastic order misinterpreting one verse. And spend, you could sleep on a slab of granite and flagellate yourself and uh, go into a solitary confinement or whatever they tried to do to get close to God based on misinterpreting one verse. My point is, it does matter what God said. And we should give due diligence to understand the scriptures. And as we said on the radio yesterday, God is wanting to do a powerful work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And there's nothing more powerful than the words God has spoken. They are spirit and life. And when we get those words clear, properly interpreted, properly applied, with valid implications, God will use those, if we believe, to change our lives. But we take the same words, misinterpret them, mistranslate them, misapply them, come up with invalid implications. If you're taking the hermeneutics class, you know what that is. And it'll put you in bondage. There's, there's life and death. Bondage or freedom, depending on whether you believe what God said clearly and understandably. So why do we make such a big thing about understanding the Bible? Because we care about everyone's spiritual well-being. That's why. All right, so this better resurrection isn't one that's reserved for people that are martyred. Isn't that sort of like the Islamic idea? Okay, that um, if you... Uh, they, if you uh, kill a whole bunch of innocent women and children, then you're going to have a better resurrection? I don't think so. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. What it, what it means does matter, and it matters for all eternity. So, others were tortured. Now, as we pointed out, it is very important... The people tortured and killed had the same quality of faith as the people who put armies to flight. And so what a, what a shame it is when teachers say that the validity of your faith is determined by your circumstances. That the better job you have or the more friends you have or the more uh, money you have, or the more well-being you have, that proves you're a great person of faith. But if you got difficulties and sorrows and sicknesses and poverty, that you obviously either have very weak faith or you're an unbeliever. This is a travesty. It's false. And this passage right here is all you need to correct it. If you just study this. Those whose deliverance came through suffering and martyrdom. God can deliver us from things and He can deliver us through things. God does cause all things to work together for the good of those who are called according to His purpose. God does this. Um, I was going to cite something here from Lane. Let me see if I can find that. 380... 
Um, the trans- transition is affected by a change of the subject, and then it gives the Greek, but others. See, it uses an adversity. That means it's making a strong contrast. Um, followed by the frank acknowledgement that the, dem- mis- the demonstration of invincible faith did not imply immunity from persecution, humiliation, and violent death. There's no immunity from these sort of things. And it says here, this is William Lane, the experience of such humiliation was one of recent memories for the Jewish community in Alexandria um, when the Roman prefect Flaccus, appointed A.D. 32, which, which would have been not that long before this was written, arranged a spectacle in a theater that consisted of Jews being scourged, hung up, bound to a wheel, brutally mauled, and hauled off to, for their death march through the middle of the orchestra. So here the Romans took Jewish people and tortured them for their own amusement. And so these are the sort of things these Jewish Christians knew had happened to their Jewish brethren. And it said here, those who were so tortured had refused the opportunity to gain their freedom at the cost of renouncing their faith. So when it says the deliverance not accepted reflects a ransom refused because the price was the renunciation of commitment to God. Notice where it says here, not accepting their release. So why didn't they accept their release? Because the terms were renounce God, renounce your faith, then we'll let you go. And they would not accept the terms because they wouldn't deny God, and they wouldn't deny their faith. Um, here, some of these stories come from the intertestamental period during the time of the Maccabees. Let me read to you about some of those. Um, the statement is amply illustrated by the behavior of 90-year-old scribe Eliezer, who refused the pretense of renouncing commitment to God so they might, quote, be released from death, 2 Maccabees 6.22. He willingly chose the rack and endured a brutal beating. When he was about to die under the blows, he groaned aloud and said, It is clear to the Lord in his holy knowledge that though I might have been released from death, I am enduring terrible sufferings in my body through this beating, but in my soul I am glad to suffer these things because I fear him. 2 Maccabees 6.30, 2 Maccabees 7.24 So these were stories that not only in the biblical period, but in the intertestamental period, were part of the history and the memory of these Jewish believers. So not only now as believers in Christ are there threats against their lives, they had experienced that previously just in their Judaism because the world hates the Jews. Why? Because God chose them. That's why. Satan hates God's plan. Okay, so that they might obtain a better resurrection. And I'm saying that that is the resurrection at the end of the age, not um, just a resurrection back to mortality. Now, did that 
hope of resurrection exist in the Jewish mind previous to the New Covenant? Well, for, there, there isn't as much in the Old Testament about the resurrection of the body, but it's not absent. One passage that's the most explicit is in Daniel 12 and verse 2. Maybe somebody could look that up. Linda, could you look up Daniel 12 and verse 2? That, but it did teach the resurrection, right? That passage? It taught the resurrection and it was the Old Testament. Now, let me quote something again from Maccabees, which would be the intertestamental period, showing that they had belief in the resurrection at that time. Here's a quote from to Maccabees 7. One cannot choose to die at the hands of men and to cherish the hope that God gives of being raised again by Him for their... But for you, there will be no anastasis, that's Greek for resurrection, ace zoane into life. So, in 2 Maccabees 7.14, there is, exists at that time a belief that the true believers would be raised unto eternal life, but that those who are wicked would not. And that would be reflect that, that passage in Daniel 12 and verse 2. That there's resurrection of the righteous and the unrighteous, but one unto life and the other unto disgrace and punishment. Now that same idea is John, yes. Yeah, Job said, um, I believe that my you know, that in my flesh I will see God. Uh you have also passages in um, Isaiah. And the other thing is that for example, the New Testament claims that it was predicted in the Old Testament that Jesus Christ would be raised from the dead. And the question comes up, but where? But what, but where you find the, the prediction of Christ's resurrection is in typology and also in these prophecies about messianic suffering. For example, in Psalm 22, you have Messiah suffering and dying, but then after his suffering and dying, there's this, he's singing praises in the congregation. So it implies a resurrection. In Isaiah 53, you also have, after the suffering and death, the resultant victory and life and so on. So there is a implication of the resurrection, although it's not explicitly stated. So there we have the doctrine of the resurrection in Daniel. And that's a good one to remember in case anybody asks you. Daniel 12, 2 is where it's stated. That's part of the, that's part, Daniel 12, 2 is part of the reason the, some liberals think Daniel wasn't written until the intertestamental period. There are several reasons they say that. One of them is because there's these detailed prophecies in Daniel 11 that are filled, fulfilled during the period after Alexander the Great when his kingdom was divided into four sections under the Ptolemies and Seleucids. There's detailed prophecies in Daniel 11 about those events. So the liberals say they might, Daniel must have been written after the events because nobody could have gotten that right. And then they also suggest that he must have, Daniel was written in like 67 BC or something because otherwise it wouldn't have this verse about the resurrection in Daniel 12 too because they didn't understand this in Daniel's day. But one of the big problems with that whole theory is Daniel's prophecy of the 70 weeks, 69 weeks in the 70th week, prophesies about the coming of Messiah that happens late 30-something A.D. 
And it comes right down to the very day of the triumphal entry. We've talked about that before. So how are they going to explain that one away? And I think that what you real, come to realize is that the liberals just don't believe in the supernatural. And they don't believe that God actually gives prophecies that come true later. So they assume that Daniel was written much later than what the Bible would say Daniel was written. Because Daniel lived in, in Babylonia after the captivity, which was, what was it, 498 B.C.? I can't remember the exact dates. It's right around 500 B.C., I think, the time of the captivity, if I'm not mistaken. All right, let's go to the next passage, Hebrews 11.36. And others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. You know, when I think about this, I think nobody epitomizes this more than the prophet Jeremiah. He had the most miserable life of anybody I've ever read about in, in the Bible. Because some of the others were killed, but then, then their misery was over. But Jeremiah, not only did he suffer the rejection and uh, persecution of the wicked, but he was he was rejected by everybody. They wouldn't nobody would listen to him. They didn't believe what he said. They wouldn't believe his prophecies. And they mistreated him continually. And um here's uh, in fact Lane brings that out. Jeremiah had been beaten and placed in the stocks, complained bitterly that he had been made an object of riddle, ridicule, and mockery, whose ministry brought only insult or reproach. Jeremiah twenty, verse two and verses seven through eight. On another occasion, he had been beaten and imprisoned in the dungeon where he remained for a lengthy period, Jeremiah 37, 15 to 16, 18 through 20. When he was, subs- when he was subsequently lowered into a mud-filled cistern, he would have starved to death had not a Cushite official of the royal palace secured permission to remove him from the cistern, Jeremiah 38, 6 through 13. In, su- in summarizing a long history of abuse, Joshua ben Sirah said of Jeremiah, they had afflicted him. <laughs> well, then to add insult to injury, after Jeremiah's prophecy was proven true, what were they so angry with Jeremiah about? Does anybody remember? What was he prophesying? Israel's own captivity. Yeah, he was prophesying the captivity. Now, you can see why that's not very popular. He's a national prophet for Israel, and he's saying the Babylonians are going to defeat us. And they're going to destroy the temple and carry us off captive. And God said it's going to happen. Well, who wants to hear that? I mean, you know, that's it's unpatriotic. But it was the truth. Well, he was proven right, and he got left behind. Some others were carried off, but he was up behind with some Jews. And they inquired of him because, well, he'd been right, okay? They said, well, Jeremiah, now what's God saying? You know, he carried up, you know, he prophesied the captivity. So he went to the Lord and the Lord told him, stay here. Stay right here in Jerusalem. And, uh, because what, what was the promise that, I think, how many years? 70 years later, they would be returning? And so he told the people, okay, we're supposed to stay here. God told us to stay here. And they said, no, we don't like that. So they, they took Jeremiah by force and hauled him, force and hauled him away to, to Egypt. So the last thing that happened was they still wouldn't listen to him. Now, how would you like to have a ministry that in your whole life nobody ever listened to you? 
And, and God wasn't very sympathetic. <laughs> Jeremiah went to God and said, this is so, this is unbearable. I cannot take this anymore. It's, it's too miserable. I, I can't go on. And you know what God said to him? He says, if you can't run with the horsemen, how are you going to run with the horses? Which poetically means it's going to get worse. <laughs> so every time, if I ever start feeling badly about being in the ministry, I always meditate on Jeremiah. <laughs> so I got it pretty good. It, it would be really hard if not one person would ever listen to you. So, um, some other cross-references, if you want to bring um, the mic, let's try it again here. Kathy, uh, Genesis 39.20, Karen, 2 Chronicles 16.10, and then this one passage I'm going to look up and we'll all read it together in Jeremiah. It's going to be Jeremiah 37.15-21, to 21, but it's six verses, so I'll read those. Okay, Genesis 39 and verse 20. Then Joseph's master took him and put him in the prison, a place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was in the prison. So Joseph was thrown in prison. Why was Joseph, Kathy, you know why Joseph was thrown in prison? Remember? Oh, yeah, because he wouldn't accept the advances of his um, master's wife. Yeah, because he, he was thrown in prison for being righteous and for being loyal to his master. So there's someone who was mistreated for being faithful to God. Alright, uh, 2 Chronicles 16.10. Then Asa was angry with his seer and put him in prison, for he was enraged at him for this. And Asa oppressed some of the people at the same time. So there's somebody else put in prison. Now look at Jeremiah 37.15-21. to 21. have a little snippet of Jeremiah. I kind of gave you the overview. Jeremiah 37.15-21. And it says, then the officials were angry at Jeremiah and beat him. And they put him in jail in the house of Jonathan the scribe, which they had made into the prison. (laughs) Notice they don't need to scribe anymore. Why? Because they don't want to hear the Bible. Remember, uh, they, they brought, you know, a scribe had a tedious job to transcribe the scriptures. They brought scriptures to one of those kings. Which one was it? Zedekiah or... One of the wicked kings, and he cut it up and threw it in fire. So why? So why? So they take the house of the scribe, turn it into a prison for for the prophet. Because <laughs> why? So it's, it's sort of ironic. They don't want to hear from God. Why have a scribe? Because it's their job to transcribe the Bible, and they don't want to hear it anyhow. They'd already cut up part of it and threw it in the Bible, threw it in the fire. Um, boy, it's almost like today, isn't it, where people don't want to hear the Bible? So they put him into. Um, Hold on here. I'm at verse 15. They made it, uh, which they made into a prison. Verse 16. For Jeremiah had come to the dungeon, that is, the vaulted cell, and Jeremiah stayed there many days. Now King Zedekiah sent and took him out, and in his palace the king secretly asked him and said, is there a word from the Lord? Now, just get this. This, this is the guy they didn't want to hear. He, he had him in prison because he didn't want to hear what Jeremiah said. But he kind of still thought that Jeremiah Excuse me, Jeremiah was really a prophet, so he's kind of wondering, well, you know, maybe he's got a better word now. You know, well, we'll keep asking, maybe he'll come up with something more favorable than the, than the one from before. So, so he secretly asked him if there's a word from the Lord. And Jeremiah says, there is. And here it is. 
you will be given into the hand of the king of Babylon. <laughs> that same old word from the Lord. <laughs> he can't come up with anything positive. Verse 18, Moreover, Jeremiah said to King Zedekiah, In what way have I sinned against you, or sinned against your servants, or against this people, that you put me in prison? Where then are your prophets who prophesied to you, saying the king of Babylon will not come against you or against this land? Come now, please listen, O my lord the king. Please let my petition come before you. Do not make me return to the house of Jonathan the scribe, that I may not die there. Then King Zedekiah gave commandment, and they committed Jeremiah to the court of the guardhouse and gave him a loaf of bread daily from the baker's street until all the bread in the city was gone. So he remained in the court of the guardhouse. So there was a case where, having been in prison, they still wanted to get a word from God, but they didn't like it. Evidently, Jeremiah was not secret sensitive. Well, you know, you know, I think Jeremiah had failed to attend the Robert Schuler School of Church, <laughs> Institute of Church Growth. Um, I think Schuler could have set him straight. <laughs> Get a positive word and they won't throw you in prison. But, as we see from the story of Jeremiah and many other biblical stories, the word of the Lord is the word of the Lord. And it isn't up to man to determine what's acceptable and what isn't. It is what it is. And people of faith have one duty, and that is to find out what God's word is and believe it, and then subsequently by grace through faith obey it to live out the word as God has spoken to us. And that is uh, what authoritative word of God is all about. Now, in cases of utter apostasy, the word of God is simply rebelled against. It's forthrightly rejected and rebelled against. For example, in the case of the modernists, in the 1900, 1910, 1920. They just simply said, no, we don't believe in miracles. We don't believe in the virgin birth. We don't believe the Bible's true. We don't believe in the literal resurrection from the dead. We only believe that life is about trying to be happy now. So there was just utter rebellion against the Word of God by the institutional church of the day uh, during that time. And they debunked the Bible and relegated to the ash heap of history or simply uh, uh, taken out most of it and kept the ethical teachings. All right, They were willing to see Jesus as a great teacher, but they weren't willing to see him as a savior and a redeemer whose blood was shed for the forgiveness of sins. But there are other ways in which the word of God is treated just as shabbily, only not so forthrightly. In some ways, it's almost worse because it's done under cover. And the, the other way of, of doing this that has been popularized recently that doesn't cause as much of a, a fallout as the modernists did um, in the 19, early 1900s is to simply neglect the word, relegate it to a place of sort of a misuse or unuse or disuse, and make it a religious artifact or something like that. And that's basically what was the case in my youth that I saw in church. When I was growing up in a church that had been taken over by liberalism many decades earlier, 
until one pastor was finally honest with me, I didn't hear anybody saying the word of God was false. But what they did was they had two pulpits. They had, as I was looking to the front, the one on the left, which would be stage right, I guess. Is that how they say that? Anyhow, the the pastor would go over there and there's this great, big, huge, goldy Bible and it would open. He'd open it and read a verse out of there at the point of the liturgy where you do that. Then he'd close it. And then we'd do the rest of whatever we did. And then there was another pulpit where he preached from. And when he got in there, out would come U.S. News and World Report, Reader's Digest, poems, little sayings. And the idea that was not necessarily told us object, you know, overtly, but the idea I got was the Bible was some quaint artifact and the words of life are found in a Reader's Digest. And so that's one way of neglecting the Scriptures without actually forthrightly rejecting them. Now, I guess that's not shocking. This was a this was a denomination that had actually embraced many of that particular denomination embraced liberalism all the way back in the 1880s. And so so this was 70 years later when I came on the scene of history in the 50s. So they've been liberal for for as long as you can know what liberalism is. But what's shocking now is that the same procedure is being brought into the evangelical church. And that is, as we were talking about on the radio yesterday, one way, how can you get rid of this Word of God? Well, in Jeremiah's day, they just threw him in prison and told him to shut up. All right? How do you get rid of the, the, the authoritative Word of God that speaks to us, that tells us what to believe, that challenges us, that changes our lives, and that gives us uh, eternal hope? How do you get rid of it? Rewrite it. You come up with such a loose paraphrase that a person reading it could hardly find what God is saying. We were talking about that on, on the radio. What's another way of getting rid of it? Well, you misinterpret it. You try to go through, just like the liberals did, they, they were going to find the ethical teachings of Jesus in the Bible. Why? Well, because all the world religions believe in ethical teachings. The, the idea of turning the other cheek... You can find that in dozens of religions. So they could say, well, we'll keep that because that, that way we can be in agreement with all the other world religions, but we're going to take out the blood atonement because that's where we run into our problem in our, in our inability to get along with the world. Well, how do we do that today? You, 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 you basically find principles for believing in the Bible. And so the Beatitudes, which I think are the law of God showing us our need for the gospel. Because how can you read the Beatitudes and not feel like you're falling short? I don't know how you can do anything but feel like you're falling short. Well, here's what my kingdom is going to be like. You can't even get angry. And if you do, you're as bad as a murderer. Now, okay, what does that show you? That your righteousness is filthy rags. That you need a savior. It doesn't take away the, the, the ethical teaching, but it shows us how great a need we have for Christ and that ultimately this, this won't be true until Christ returns and the kingdom is here 
and we have our glorified bodies, we will literally be able to live exactly as he says in the Beatitudes. But what do, what do we do with them if we want to take away that idea? Because the idea of the law that shows us our need for the gospel brings us back to this blood atonement, which is the one thing they want to get rid of. And it offends everybody. Well, you can't write a book called The Be Happy Attitudes. I've got it up on my desk. Absolutely, The Be Happy Attitudes. That was Robert Schuller. Said now this this is a prescription for happy living now, and try to have a better attitude and you'll be happier. Brothers and sisters, this is no different than classical theological liberalism from the modernists. It's no different than Harry Emerson Fosdick. It's no different than uh, uh, people who denied the resurrection. And what's going on today is not deny anything, just let it die of neglect. And then change what's left into prescriptions for better living now. Who needs to worry about the hope of the resurrection from the dead? People aren't concerned about that. It's not one of their felt needs. So, um, we've seen uh, that here in our passage that the people of faith would not cave in to the demands of the religious establishment. They would not uh, accept their release if it meant renouncing their faith. That whether they had great victories or whether they suffered miserably, they one and all believed God, trusted God, and would not do anything but proclaim the Word of God for what it is. That's, that's Jeremiah. It's a great example for us. And... I don't, I don't know how, only, only by God's grace, how could anybody do that, not have one person supporting them their whole life? Uh, Jeremiah is amazing. Uh, amazing guy. But the word of the Lord is that important that it's worth giving up your friends in order to embrace it. So I commend unto you unto the Lord and His word and trust Him, believe Him, and you too will obtain a better resurrection.